What's up, listeners? This is Emmett. I am here with John and Canada Mike. What's up, guys? Yo. Saddam. This is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. And today we are talking about expendable life, baby. We're going to be talking through Alex Gendler's excellent piece in American Affairs, The New Superfluous Men, which I quite enjoyed. I thought he got a lot of quality out of a few pages. And we're also going to be talking about a recent piece from uh, podcast favorite John Michael Greer uh, called That Untraversed Land, where he goes into what's going on with uh, the employment situation in America. So which one do we want to start with first, fellas? I would go with the American Affairs piece first. I think yeah. it works well as an intro. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good to me. Mike, you good on that? Yeah. All right. The New Superfluous Men. So this is sort of Alex Gendler's response to basically the idea of the incel. And I thought it was quite brilliant, to be honest, where he's like, this is the rule, not the exception to have a bunch of expendable men. And that works for a simple biological reason. That is not the reason that right-wing trads want it to be, but it's that most men never pass on their genes because they are expendable and they end up getting put to use in the clergy or working dangerous jobs or going to war, right? Yeah. That the thing that that we think of when we think of uh, normalcy is actually the exceptional post-war period in America, which was unprecedented in human history. If anything, I would say, to make his point even better, I wouldn't use the word expendable because it kind of presupposes that normalcy. That was one thing that stuck out to me was that it presupposes there's some other state of affairs that somehow held sway that we can compare that to and be like, oh, wow, like all of human history was actually just instrumentalizing human life in this sort Mm -hmm. of like eye of God looking down on the world as an RTS game kind of way. But, like, I think that's almost to his point, though, really. Yeah. Yeah, his, his point seems to be, like, there are certain biological conditions that impact how we create our society. And reproduction is central to that. So sexual dynamics are central to that, you know. The difference is now that the ratio between men who pass on their genes versus women who pass on their genes has achieved comparative parity, historically speaking, that there are a bunch of what he calls superfluous men who can now sort of wallow in their shitty situation (laughs) that it feels like there's no way out of, you know? Yeah, I thought like, especially it appealed sort of to the period of history that I've spent the most time reading about. I mean, not necessarily only that period, but I feel like it was a good example of it, which would be like the early Middle Ages, where you can just imagine like you're, I don't know, you're like a Frank, you're living near the mouth of the Rhine. Suddenly the water level has risen. All of the arable farmland has been destroyed. You're really good at building boats and sailing them. So what do you do? <laughs> you have no food. Like what? what's going to happen next? And it's like going to war, going to raid and finding wealth 
ponder but then you know especially later on in the and you know some hundreds of years later it'll be finding farmland is the eventual goal like you'll want plunder and, and and some precious metals but like after that's all over you kind of want to settle in like rural york as the the danish king of york and there's an idea that that was somehow motivated by like a cultural form of bloodlust rather than kind of like much more just a simple necessity for food and mm -hmm. a place to like have a stable living situation which is no longer possible with maybe let's say the population levels in a place that can no longer sustain them and so there were always these methods by which people by sheer necessity would go fight other people and many would die the world wasn't that populated to begin with at that time so and it's only now that we have a kind of remarkable food security across the world despite the fact that not everyone has that it's still much higher than ever before and much less likelihood of dying in a war or any mm -hmm. kind of you know violence yeah exactly we are all now trapped on the ship figuring out how to enjoy our symptoms I, I think, you know, in, in some ways, the, you know, I, I like this article on, on first reading a lot. And, you know, it didn't have to make its case to me very much in order for me to get to, to accept the general point. I think in, in some ways, both this and the Greer piece, like I can see people objecting to them on like various specific points, like this piece in particular, like the narrative that it constructs is that, you know, and it's kind kind of a lefty narrative, but it's basically like elite men always have a racket running historically where they sacrifice low status men in, in, or as the the other side of the coin, as he says, to the subjugation of women, you know, and I, I think like it's, it's definitely possible to poke holes in this in different kinds of ways, right? You know, like we can, we can point to periods where this is like very true and periods where it's less true, but like clearly, you know, like the thing I was thinking of is like, okay, or some, some scholars believe in, you know, pre-modern celtic societies that like basically it was the norm for young men to just be like kicked out of the tribe right like you mm -hmm. would just you would have the clan the boys would just you know like turn 14 and you just send them out and they would do like cattle raiding mm -hmm. they just live in the woods right and like not all of them came back right and that probably nobody really cared right <laughs> and so like you know that's that's a part of the human experience it's definitely something that can crop up in society and i think both of these pieces almost like it's better to to think of them as being like fundamentally about now than about like all of history because i think i think you can poke poke holes in the claims right like the in particular like the evidence that his more detailed kind of timeline runs along where he remember he says that like around eight thousand years ago there's this big sort of collapse in male reproductive success right and it goes yeah. from you know like basically half of the number of men as women are reproductively active to like five percent Right. And that's like, 8, and like, as soon as I read that, I was like, yeah, man, that's a collapse of Atlantis. Like, I get it. Like, we're going along 8,000 years before the press. But, you know, like if you, <laughs> this is the Timaeus. A, this is Vika. Yeah, yeah. This is Herder. <laughs> yeah. We know exactly what's going on here. And I mean, it's a very appealing kind of narrative that this condition has always existed, but to like kind of a variable 
extent. At the same time, I think the the if you go and look at the genetic evidence that this is based on, the interpretation of the authors is much more conservative. And I think deservedly so, because this evidence is derived from, I think, like 230 genomes mm -hmm. from 110 different populations. So two or three people from 110 populations distributed mostly across Europe and Siberia. And it seems to be convenient samples. So we're looking probably at certain kinds of people whose genomes are available to us. And the, the other thing that I was a little bit concerned with was that the, so there are two different background models for the genetic regions that they're looking at, which are the Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA, two different background models that account for just mutation over time, right? And they're looking at how much variability is present in the male contribution, which is the Y chromosome versus the female contribution, which is the mitochondrial DNA, okay? So mm -hmm. we're finding more variability in the mitochondrial DNA. So we infer from that more women. More more women contributing to that stretch of DNA. Mm -hmm. they, and the, the background models that are used, like there was some model selection done, so that's nice, but they picked two different models for the, these two different regions. And as far as I can tell, they're both single nucleotide substitution models. And I don't know that that's well justified because my impression is, is that the Y chromosome has a lot of other different kinds of events that are happening. It's a more fragile structure that requires repair. There are different kinds of sequence constraints on it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, as much as I like this, or I, I respond positively to this because I think it's relevant to the present, like, I don't think we should take this as like a really sweeping necessarily. case. Yeah. Yeah. There, it's definitely possible. I think that's, yeah, I think that's fine. I think one thing that we can say for the piece is that it does seem to put to bed a lot of the like hypergamy assumptions of the incel thing, just because of the groundedness in like the white suburban life is a general electric ad as yeah. like a type of historical normalcy, right? Like if we go back to our episode on like nostalgia with Lash on the Patreon, like that is just nostalgia. That is not actually like a perspective on historical or present realities. Yeah, I think I, I agree a lot with all of that because it, anytime somebody is like actually a lot of things in history like make me feel comfortable about the point I'm making to you right now. Mm -hmm. I really never buy into that because I feel like my experience of being aware of stuff is that none of it makes me entirely comfortable making any kind of point about anything. Like <laughs> the more you try and just let it be what it seems to be, you're like, there's a lot here that doesn't neatly like serve my ideological interests at any given time. John, I, I will actually, always respect your ability to just like live in aporia. <laughs> like, I, and I mean that totally sincerely. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it feels like, I don't know if I chose it after real life <laughs> chose me, I guess, but it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely like ideological on some level and maybe like, you know, it's the kind that you want to buy into or whatever, but I agree that like sort of giving a like, especially the stuff about like the elites have always been running a racket kind of a thing is always mm -hmm. like, yeah, okay. Like, no, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that, I mean, that's one, that is a deeply tendentious way of looking at a lot of different times and places uh, mm -hmm. that is not even necessary, 
to really talk about what we're ta talking about now. And I think you can make the very same argument with a much smaller, maybe historical claim, which is that far more people died before than die now. Mm -hmm. And far more people live now than lived then. And those two things just seem to be like true and verifiable mm -hmm. in, in, in certain circumstances. And we now have a lot of men alive who like need some sort of like place to be and thing to do. And there's like a big problem with that. But, and I, you know, I think this is very true. Instead of understanding this as some kind of aberration from the 1950s, we should understand it. I think maybe not as normalcy because I do think we have more people now than ever, but it's sort of like, this is a different kind of aberration. This is an aberration because we have a lot of food and mm -hmm. people tend to live, you know, longer. They tend to die of fewer things, stuff like that. Yeah. Fairly, fairly basic stuff that I think it's not difficult to say is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I respond well to that. I mean, so I listened to an interview with Alex Gendler on this piece over at Alpha Bunga Bunga. Those guys interviewed him on this. I mean, he is, the thing he says is like, I mean, he's just like a Marxist, right? So he's going to be like, class society is the problem. Once we get rid of that, this problem is solved. I tend to think that that's like cargo cult stuff, but I get it. Like, it's not like he has an unsophisticated analysis here. So I can't discredit him entirely on those grounds. And I don't want to either, because I think this is a helpful contribution. And I'm glad he wrote it because it seems to speak to some of what's going on in the career, right? Where he's like, let me pull up my favorite thing. So the Greer thing, you guys don't mind if I like start braiding these together, do you? No, no. Okay. So the Greer thing is basically like, we're going through in America a strike wave, which is frankly awesome to see, right? A lot of UAW workers are on strike now with John Deere. We have IATSE, we have Kaiser Permanente, we have the Warrior Met coal miners that have been on strike for months in Alabama, I believe. We have just tons of it. Like people can go check out Jonah Furman's Twitter and he does like a Substack that basically keeps an eye on all this stuff. He works for labor notes. He's like the guy to go to, you know, he's got the good inside dope. But then we also have this other thing going on, which people are having a harder time wrapping their heads around, right? I was listening to the American Mind podcast, The Roundtable put out by the Claremont Institute. And it was very interesting to listen to a bunch of right populists who are actually just more like upper middle class guys who are into the great books, like try to figure out what the problem is here with employment. But I think, and that's not to make fun of them, right? I do mean that it was interesting to listen to them try to wrap their heads around it. But Greer says this, if you want people to put up patiently with long hours of drudgery at miserably low wages, subject to wretched conditions and humiliating policies so that their self-proclaimed betters can enjoy lifestyles they will never be able to share, it's a really bad idea to make them stop work and give them a good long period of solitude in which they can think about what they want out of life and how little of it they're getting from the role you want them to play. It's an especially bad idea to do it so that they have no way of knowing when or if they will ever be allowed to return to their former lives, thus forcing them to look for other options in order to stay fed, clothed, housed, and the like. Right? And he says, we'll set aside vaccine mandates. But that is part of how Greer captures what we are now calling as the Great Resignation. That like four and a half million people since like August have just been Johnny paycheck to their jobs. Just like you can take this job and shove it. Right. What, how did, what did you guys think about this piece? Because I think there's like a lot of overlap between some of the things Gendler is pointing to and what 
Greer communicates in that paragraph. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, for probably both John and I, who've read a lot of like Greer's previous blog, the Archwood Report, this is posted on Echo Sophia, which is concerned with like much more esoteric matters normally than than this. But the Archwood Report, like kind of the, the context that this occurs in is Greer's overall idea that, which probably comes up mainly out of Tainter, but other people as well. Well, that, you know, towards the end of a civilization's life, what happens is that, you know, the complexity of solutions that is added to deal with various kinds of crises is a sort of like diminishing returns process where eventually those solutions are more expensive. The society has diminishing resources that are available to maintain an elite. And so what you end up with is a downward mobile elite, in this case, in our case, the really the PMC, the children of the, the PMC, who then are kind of either cast into this sort of dog-eat-dog elite hyper-competition, you know, which he mentions in the context of like the, the sort of like woke cancel culture stuff that's for him is part of elite hyper-competition. And then you have all of these people who are simply just dropping out, right? And that, that includes, you know, déclassé elites as well as the working class or what's left of it. And, you know, his idea is that in general, like this is, this is sort of like a general historical pattern and that, you know, if you want to know what's coming, you should look at mainly what those day class A elites are doing in conjunction with the working class. Cause if they get together, that's usually mm -hmm. when things change in a big way. Yeah. John. Yeah, I was, I think he mentions Toynbee here and there. I never read those books yet, A Study of History, but I would imagine some of this is in there too, because he, maybe even more than Tainter, kind of took yeah, describing, describing this kind of pattern and the sections of it on decline and fall of civilizations and like what precedes that and then what comes after. But yeah, it's... It was definitely a beautiful bit of Greerian prose, very typical that you chose, where he just says a lot of things in a way where you're like, yeah, like, that's so that right. The first part and is I, like one sentence and all of the pronouns in it, like <laughs> actually line up when he has like multiple right. days running throughout it. I just want to point out at a level of like craftsmanship of prose is really hard to pull off and there's one clause in there where i'm like that's always where i get stuck in doing what he does and he like orients it in a way where he resolves it and i was like i gotta steal that that's like the perfect, tolerably yeah. good writer yeah i was like i just have to tolerably steal good yeah yeah <laughs> he uses the word tolerably like a tolerable amount no it yeah i guess it feels overall pretty compelling i can say i don't really like have any access to any information that would allow me to like scrutinize what he's describing and like i won't say that it doesn't exist i'll just say that i haven't really looked for it but like you know the unemployment records are there and then the people are still alive so i guess the assumption is that they're finding a way to like sustain their lives some other way yeah they're that doing that side is, hustles or something i mean the thing the yeah. other thing that i think it was like Maybe Sagar and Jetty brought this up earlier this week, and he said one of the other things that people aren't totally accounting for here is the fact that like the rules around COVID and schools is so fucking crazy that like you just can't have two parents work anymore. Yeah, because if like one kid coughs, it's like the entire school can't go for two weeks, 
and you go back to online or whatever, and you, you can't maintain a working life while yeah. that happens, right? So you just got to sort of take the financial loss because it's too unpredictable, which I could see as somebody filling gaps with that with a lot of under the table work to sort of get by. I mean, this is like doing the neighbor's ironing and stuff like that, you know, if we want a throwback idea. Right. I mean, it. I, I wouldn't stretch the comparison too far, but just because I made it earlier, it like once people who lived in places where farming was no longer easy or possible figured out you could go somewhere else and like steal stuff and that it was easy to like sign on to that kind of adventure and it was going to be happening more and more and more and more successfully. That's like not something that then gets put back into the bottle for like quite a many few hundred mm -hmm. years. And I think that you could just, it feels generally true about things like this. Like wh what would we do now that this has happened to like make things seem normal again? And the answer that I can come up with is like better compensation and that doesn't, it doesn't know. I don't know if that's on the table. <laughs> I mean, I think that's why those, these people are striking. Right. Because right. they're like, you know, we're doing 16 hours a day. Somebody was talking about how just in time has really fucked up doing like food stuff, food distribution, because it's like, you can't have an extra stock to just like rely on. And so they have a tight labor market, but nobody can last at the new positions because once you get trained for two days, they burn you out by forcing you into a bunch of overtime and they can't actually do that. So what they do is they extend your first shift by four hours and then make you show up four hours early to your next one. And like, that's how they work in the OT because they can't make you do it, right? And of course, nobody can put up with that for a really long time, especially if you're new, right? Uh, and so people just wash out, like they can't keep people even if they could pay them more. So it, I don't think it's just compensation. I also think a lot of it has to do with the structure of how we do things now and the way people get treated at work, which is without dignity, right? Like we've talked before on the show about sort of the famine of an idea of dignity in America. And I think we're really seeing some of those chickens come home to roost now. And we'll see them come home to roost this winter when the energy crisis gets really underway. But rather than take a detour down energy lane, which I already do enough of at my new podcast, Nuclear Barbarians, by the way, you can subscribe to that and the notes to this episode. I wanted to talk about something I really liked from the Greer thing, and it's all of these like weird elite add-ons to what should be more straightforward processes. Like There are all these middlemen just carving out their niche everywhere, and it basically right, intermediation. Yeah, all of this intermediation. I thought that point was really solid. Yeah, this is one of his fundamental ideas that he's come back to over and over and over, right? Is that you have structures of administrative uh, bureaucracy that intermediate between like basic social functions such that, you know, like simple example, you want to do something to your house. Well, if you live in an incorporated municipality, you're probably going to have to pay a building inspector. Does the building inspector know anything about houses? You'd be fucking lucky if you did. Because most of them don't. <laughs> All right. Like, that, so, you know, like, but for real, right? Like it's not, it's not a structural engineer. It's not a civil engineer. It's not someone who knows something about houses. It's just some fucking guy who did, you know, like a two month course, got the license and now is in that intermediary position, siphoning off a fee from this process, which shouldn't involve 
that, right? Like perhaps there are safety concerns. Okay, there are ways to address those, but like this is a completely useless process in in very many cases, right? Yeah, and and these accumulate, right? These these accumulate as civilization goes on. It's a ratchet, right? Like once one of these things is added, it's a constituency, and it doesn't go away. Yeah, this is usually one of the strongest points libertarians have. By the way, I when they start talking about stuff like this, I'm like, I get it. It's especially like, visible in like Mike's talking about when you get to the low level of like a local government's operation or like mm -hmm. pseudo government things, where via the law they're able to graft themselves onto because a lot of the times it's not like direct government employees but things that are required by the government to exist and thus kind of owe the fact that they can make money to the fact that they're required to do something that may or may not have any value which you know like when we say the term bureaucracy it kind of conjures a certain image but it is like maybe we're exploding that term to mean a lot of other things as well that are kind of like outgrowths of that because on some level like bureaucracy makes states work makes things legible to the state and maybe that's important or not or maybe you like that or you don't but it's mm -hmm. at least like serving some sort of purpose but this i think you could argue like it's not really increasing legibility to the state nor really always increasing like state revenues or things but merely serving to create ways for people to have something to do which is i guess one of the points both of these pieces kind of circle around mm -hmm. in their own way. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of this parasite economy that makes everything more difficult. You know, I mean, I think that this is part of the, let's say, financial element of administratively weak, normatively strong. Right. Because like, these aren't even, they're yeah. not bureaucracies per se. They're part right. of a normative framework that creates these niche parasitic markets that chisel out of people's incomes when they're just trying to get by right and i think that that's part of what's happening too so it, it is locking people into a class it's striating society more deeply as i think part of what greer is saying and also what gendler is saying what's interesting is this idea of the opt-out of the hustle economy now i don't know how long that can last and i don't know how long that can last like as other goods get more expensive. Like a lot of people are, are pointing out how much inflation is happening now. And I don't necessarily think it's that because we ran the economy hot. I do think it's because of we shut down the economy, we're restarting it. But also, frankly, a lot of stuff comes from China and China's grid is like fucking up right now. And every country who has grid problems will serve their grid over their imports and exports yeah. always hundred percent. They will always serve their grid over exports. Right. And it is driving the cost up for all sorts of things, you know, I mean, this feels yeah, like a weirdly precarious, but solidified moment we're living through. Totally. And I, I think he's, that's what he's getting at when he's talking about the lack of slack in the, the energy markets, right? Like Greer mm -hmm. is always thinking in terms of thermoeconomics, his explanations for things on the social level in our society and, and all societies really revolve around the way that the society moves energy around. And his interpretation of this is that the energy markets and the energy systems are extremely tight and really cannot produce the level of material excess 
that has been produced in the recent history, you know, in order to, he, he thinks of empire as basically like a, an energy pump, like a wealth pump. So you're mm -hmm. moving energy from the colonies, whatever the extractive kind of resource colonies to the imperial center. And then everyone in that, you know, intermediation kind of complex takes its cut. And what we're seeing now with the combination of this like hyper competition, you know, like just crazy methods of getting people fired, like opening up jobs, as well as the, the other side, you look at the energy markets, you look at grid instability, you look at the unavailability, unavailability of fuels in many locations. Like he sees this as one kind of integrated thing, right? Like these are symptoms of a system built on, on energetic growth, which is now kind of bumping into some kind of limit, you know, what, however you interpret that, whether it's complexity or it's, you know, a biophysical mm -hmm. limit or something. Yeah, when you go back to like five, six, seven years ago and you look at all of his writing about fracking and how this is going to end eventually, like there's no way we're going to yeah. just keep operating these things at a loss somehow. Like this mm -hmm. is clearly a stopgap that will become more and more ineffective with every passing minute. And I think a lot of what's happening right now really bears out the truth of what he was talking about. Because he kind of originates mm -hmm. out of the peak oil movement, but then his peak oil kind of thesis becomes a lot more nuanced than the original one, which he then... Well, it'd have to after the natural gas right. revolution. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of guys woke up and they were just like, just like a lot of nuclear hopefuls were like, okay, we're having a second renaissance. We're going to get some SMRs here in a second. And then natural gas and Fukushima happened and they were all like, no. Right. And I mean, he provided pretty like cogent critiques of that as well. Like there is a certain apocalypticism that when it was not delivered on kind of deflated a lot of that movement because the, the yeah. idea was more of like, one day it's just gonna it's the, curve down and then suddenly like you have to really have a good reason to operate that, that truck and thus like the state will like rapidly reduce its ability to govern you know like things were, did not happen in a very quick way and i think what we're living through mm -hmm. right now is actually the long slow way which was sort of always yeah. a theme is like the decline will be like long and slow punctuated by moments of crisis, but it'll go on for perhaps hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. And so I think to me, it seems like the only way to move up is to move up the energy ladder. Right. That's like just uranium, baby. Like, like to me, if like, we're going to keep producing things, you can't produce at a loss like you do with natural gas. You need something that's going to be energy dense and is relatively abundant. The fuel cycle has been closed on nuclear now. You can refire nuclear fuel, right? This is going to solve a lot of energy problems. It's just a big project that would require basically or the reemergence of the nation state as a meaningful broker of power, right? And that could be, right, like part of this is just we thought we could do whatever we want for a really long time and we could because we were really wealthy and now some bills are coming due and a lot of people are looking around like it looks like i got screwed and i'm just going to opt out of this and that's a fucking weird place for society to enter into yeah i think it is and i i think that also is a, a significant barrier to those kinds of mega engineering projects that we totally we that is a huge problem you for know, that you know and i think i think so greer's point of view here is not that is he's not a doomer like he thinks that there's going to be a succession of 
states like within North America that at various times kind of get it together and are able to like reproduce an industrial economy, right? Like he mm -hmm. doesn't think that's going away, but he thinks that the relative surplus that's available to those successive economies is going to be lower each time. And I think in order for that not to be true, Emmett, what you're saying is is correct, right? Like you would have to be be able to hand down energy infrastructure that can maintain over long, long periods of time, the same level of relative material abundance. I think, you know, Greer is, uh, he's one of these guys who, you know, he looks out 300 years and in his mind, there's just this like toxic landscape of abandoned reactors. I don't, I'm not convinced by by that kind of vision at all. So I think he, he would he would not approve, but, you know, certainly we don't have to to be a slave to his ideas. Yeah, no. maybe more positively, because I remember some of the, uh, like interesting speculative future stuff where it was, you know, there will be places that had nuclear and they'll be able to work off of that because it yeah. was in their zone. Like it was geographically there. And so mm -hmm. they'll cobble that together with whatever else is available and they will reestablish something, but the polity will simply not be as big as North America any longer. It will be as big as a state and it will be able to yeah. function on that level. And there will be other places that did not have that and they will not do as well in terms of energy like they will just forever be relegated to some lower ability to right support life essentially right exactly so he, we we can take a look at example an example right i'm the type of person who now watches like senate committee meetings with FERC in their like two and a half hour entirety you know and so there's this thing the clean energy performance program that the biden infrastructure bill or like the reconciliation bill i can't remember they're almost interchangeable to me because they're like they've got a lot of stuff in them but one of these things was like going to basically encourage states to build out a ton of renewables and punish them if they didn't joe manchin a democratic senator from west virginia is basically going to be responsible for killing this part of it. And people are like, well, that's because he's a former fossil fuel guy and he's in bed with them. And I'm like, that's probably 100% true. The other thing is, is that he's a representative for the people of West Virginia, which has a grid that is 90% coal, right? Yeah. So what would this SEP do to West Virginia? So when you build a big, it's a, first of all, it's a vertically integrated regulated monopoly utility, right? So when they want to build something new, they pack it into your base rate that you pay for, and they're only allowed to extract a certain amount of profit from that. That's sort of the deal we broker between getting the vertically integrated economy of scale and making sure that everybody stays happy, right? Big projects are all about spreading out evenly in a way that people feel copacetic with upside and downside. Okay. So that's how we do that there. So a lot of those coal plants are new. So that means people would keep paying for them. One of the guys from FERC was like, all right, if the SEP comes in to West Virginia, you'd have to close all of that new coal, but they would have to keep paying for it. And then on top of that, you would they would have to pay for all of the renewables that are going to be put in. And then they would have to pay more for their electricity because unreliable means unaffordable. And then they would have to deal with all of the job loss from losing major plants like this, right? That would just be devastation from which West Virginia would probably never recover. Yeah. Like infrastructurally and economically, it would be suicide for a guy like Joe Manchin to be like, yeah, game on. I'm a loyal Democrat. 
right? Like, it's not like the fossil fuel industry is just this malevolent entity doing fucking evil things here and there. It's also that people have skin in the game and a stake here, and they're not wrong for having that. So I think that that's sort of what Greer is probably looking at when he's talking about, you know, I don't really know if states are going to shrink or do whatever, but I can give credence to the fact that you can break an economy to the point where it never really recovers. I mean, take a look what happens to Iraq when America fucks up its electricity grid. They haven't yeah. returned to, they haven't recovered the grid structure they had in the 70s, right? Just think about what that does to a country crazy right and then you want to talk about what starts to happen with a bunch of people who are opting out and it gets freaky very quickly yeah yeah like debathification went really well right like kicking <laughs> yeah. a bunch of young men with guns out and, and i mean that's what we're doing here now right like i mean you can just look at the the military and the purge that's ongoing now with the the vaccine mandate it's, mm -hmm. you know not i i don't think it's about the vaccine but you know there's there's clearly um a lot of bad analogs to be to be drawn here right exactly yeah. oh it's since part of the theme of the first piece was, was like none of this is really unprecedented it all strikes me as like really not really unprecedented in a lot of ways even if economies formerly weren't as uh complex mm -hmm. like just physically complex there's you know you can think of many many examples where something that was still pretty complex got broken and didn't come back ever or for a very very long time and what ends up yeah. happening is not like it's usually that like everyone who doesn't die moves and then a few people are left maybe and mm -hmm. we perhaps don't necessarily like maybe it kind of ties back into when we were talking about the lash where there is a certain sort of Damocles kind of thing where it pays in some respects to think that this is, could happen to you because then you'll at least act like it could happen to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you'll, you'll conceive of your like current political, like communal life as something that's not necessarily destined to continue. And yeah. that, I don't think that that's really something that's big in our collective imagination. And I don't necessarily think blame anyone for that. I think that's just kind of the condition that we live in. Like it's, you're insulated from that, despite all the fact that all this is happening, you're still fairly insulated from the fact that it's happening. Like I wouldn't ever think about this if I didn't talk to you guys. Right. You know? yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, what's so funny about the post-apocalyptic imagination in America, right? Like for how many years have we been having shows like the walking dead or like whatever. And the ideas of the post-apocalyptic world are, or a world that is deeply politically fragmented and like basically degrowthed are like so laughably positive, even with the zombies, like compared to how it would be. You know what I mean? Like the fact that any character has a full set of teeth or like somehow the lights work somewhere. <laughs> like I always love it when they just have this like backup generator and it's like the zombie Holocaust happened like five years before. And you're like, where the fuck are you getting all that diesel for your small town? Like, there's what no are you guys on the There's no rust on the generators. Like there's a new one that just came out like a series. It's like the teen walking dead series. And what's so funny. There's like this compound that's finally recovered and is developing and they just have like a shitload of solar. And I'm like, okay but what do you do when it's cloudy 
Like, what do you guys have, like, advanced battery tech? Like, what is going on with these views? And sure, you can say, like, they're fiction or whatever, but that's only to, like, John's point about how shallow the collective imagination is for, like, what happens when something can be destroyed, and that is not necessarily a unique historical experience if we look backwards, right? Like, look upon my works, ye mighty, and weep. Yeah, I've yeah. been marathon watching The Last Kingdom, which is a pretty good show. It's like it's a little silly at times. Like yeah. some things are like, okay, like probably like you know, I don't feel like Viking people were that like into like killing people and rubbing blood on themselves, but I'll allow it for entertainment's <laughs> sake. Like I feel like it actually I, I won't go into it. There's no need for that, but there's some great moments where you have like really great scenes where people are talking about like sacrifices they're about to have to make and but you get the realization because at this time like wessex is the last saxon kingdom there's nothing else left on like the you know england mm-hmm. essentially is almost gone and so there's a sense of like you know we have to do whatever we have to do like a lot of people are going to die but if we fail like the church will no longer exist on this island. Mm-hmm. And so like, there's nothing else for us to do or whatever. And it was, you know, kind of a like moving picture of somebody who understands that. And you don't really get it that often. in, in like media these days where there's this sense that like, I'm stewarding something that's important and like, mm-hmm. it's possible that I will fail and that we will all fail and all be dead within a year but like what else can we do but our best and it's like wow <laughs> like you know if if it had a slightly like less congenial viewpoint it would be more like you know well we couldn't possibly fail so we need not try <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that, that would be maybe more accurate to our current way of you know yeah <laughs> like uh, more like kingdom of heaven god wills it yeah, right. <laughs> it must be war Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like we're in a moment and maybe this is me getting a little bit too highfalutin or something where like, we really need to rethink what it means to be modern. That's something I'm thinking about a lot because things aren't advancing at the rate that they used to, you know, like I think the big industrial advancement wave is actually like coming to a stagnation. Right. And we're not going to see like, we'll see neither linear nor exponential growth but like probably weird fits and starts and otherwise doldrums and all that like that's my you know we'll see all sorts of like computer shit probably but i think even that's going to level off so it's sort of like i think that that will be a return to a different type of conservatism that is basically about like what it means to maintain a society right yeah we have we have all of the modern stuff but the modernist dream is dead and probably can't be recovered so like what do we do what are our obligations now that all of this has been built that's like where i'm at like i'm starting to get to this like weird peter slaughterdyke (laughs) like (laughs) location you know what i mean like i don't know if i'm right about that but that's like just i'm eyeballing it and that's how it feels dude you should write like a a modernist tolkien where there's like people walking through a nuclear reactor and someone turns <laughs> to the other guy and he's like, 
we shall not see the like of this in the world again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am actually thinking about doing, as part of the Nuclear Barbarians like newsletter component, a read-through of Peter Sloterdijk's You Must Change Your Life to talk about what it means to be modern and how we can think of our own creativity and our resilience and all of these things. Because he's such a weird guy, you know, because I think like... Yeah, as I said, I'm just going to repeat what I said before, but that is the major question to me, right? Like, there seems to be some sort of, like, return to basics that I feel just in my bones that is not different from what we've seen before. And that's what makes it unique, because so far the modern moment has all been about novelty. Right. A very, like, frenetic. Always makes me think of the Italian futurist guy, Marinetti, just like... Yeah, machinic, yeah. frenetic, like yeah, moving, like destroying anything older than one second ago, kind of like thing. And I mean, people still definitely believe in that to some extent, maybe just as like a holdover. But you know, whenever I look into stuff like like people are talking about like OAI is like a huge buzzword in computer mm-hmm. science stuff and like it's going to change the world or whatever and eventually it'll just be perfected but i mean from what i can tell the reality of it is that like it takes so much energy Mm -hmm. and like extremely rare materials to build the machines that can do this and you have to throw a lot of machine power at some problem and essentially like brute Mm -hmm. force it and then you can get a thing that can play like starcraft really well or whatever but (laughs) It's not always entirely clear how that's going to eventually, because there's a big debate too, which is like, what is intelligence and like what a perfect image of intelligence be Mm -hmm. the same as intelligence or not and like whatever. But it's not clear to me that we're ever going to get to where that becomes a practical debate. Yeah. It seems like there are actually physical constraints or whatever that we're going to hit. Like, it might even how? be that we are dependent rational animals with souls and <laughs> that's what sets us apart from everything else and that in fact like we are not necessarily nature but we are consciousness over and against nature and that is in fact a distinct experience that there is no like in the universe that we know of <laughs> you got it sorted <laughs> there's a really good talk i can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head but he essentially points out at at one point it's like a computer science thing and he's like pretty much everything that we're doing today was like already invented by the 1970s if not the 60s like in terms of i would say like ways of thinking about programming or the use of computers or like more practical features of programming languages it's it's all cold it's the closed world of the cold war cyber cyberneticism like it's just that all the way down there is nothing really like that novel that came after that except for i mean there there are exceptions that prove that rule but otherwise Mm -hmm. it's largely like your vision yeah improvements Mm -hmm. in essentially our ability to like have more computing power right yeah so they're going to be things of magnitude basically of quantity not quality right yeah Um, if we want to think about it that way i mean that to me is like where i get to the point where it's like we should stop thinking of an absence of novelty as a loss yeah right and we need to start thinking about and this is what's appealing about Christopher Lash's critique of progress is because it gives us a way to, I would hope, I mean, we'll see as we work our way through the book, a different way to conceive of history and a different relation with novelty that isn't necessarily like degrowth or whatever. 
right? But I do yeah. think that there needs to be a shift out of the idea of like, oh, pop modernism died and now nothing feels new. Sort of like the Mark Fisher critique yeah. or like we're trapped in this cultural loop. Like I think that some of that's true, obviously. I mean, no one's more exposed to that than I am. I live in Los Angeles for God's sakes. But I do actually think that there are increasingly diminishing turns returns on that type of perspective. It, yeah. I remember Mike telling me that he was reading like capitalist realism and kind of having that idea about it. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but there's a sense of like this is like a cycle that's he's trapped in to some extent or like a way of thinking yeah. from which there is no way out. Yeah, I, I when I read that, I was like, yeah, no wonder he killed himself, right? Like, I, I felt bad before. <laughs> like, it's, it, I, like, 100% seriously, like, this, this is a depressed person, right? But No, yeah, um, he is. And, and he's, to his credit, straightforwardly so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when yeah, I think enough. about that stuff, I obviously grew up in my own time and had my own experiences and stuff. But when you think about, like, what, what are some of the commonplace pieces of evidence used to say, like, things are not happening anymore and it's like i think kind of what we're saying is like novelty is not being consistently generated on all fronts in every field all the time and it's perhaps and that's why the that's why the fund of history and cultural tradition is so yeah, important that's, that's it right because that's orienting and that is how we make sense of the world we're living in today that's that's the perspective. It can't be, why don't we just do modernism right, yeah. again? That's not going to yeah. happen, right? Like if you take seriously the idea of like the successive thing of history, then you can't buy into that idea. Yeah. We're on to something else now, right? And we have to be willing to engage with all sorts of political orientations or cultural or philosophical orientations to sort that out. Now, some things are probably going to stay relatively the same, right? Uh, obviously, because we're talking about a slowdown in novelty, but I don't think it's surprising that all of a sudden a bunch of people are flocking to Michael Millerman's courses so they can read the Republican Alexander Dugan or whatever, because they understand that whatever is being offered them as even mainstream left opinions are nowhere near radical enough, actually, in their understanding of the problem to supply anything that feels like a structure of meaning and intelligibility for them. And I think actually trying to understand ourselves as in the flow of a Western tradition for us as Westerns, as moderns, is the only way out of this or through it, I should say, not out. Yeah, I, I think Greer would agree with most of, of that, certainly. I mean, he he says this in the piece that, you know, like a lot of the genuinely productive activity that we can do now is sort of trying to curate the different cultural and technological patterns and artifacts and subsistence routines that we have that would work well. And, you know, something like the, the fourth industrial revolution, he would just like it's, it's an increase in intermediation. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, yeah, it's there's nothing new there that's happening like thermoeconomically in terms of like real technological advance, like substantial new like social novelty or something that would solve the problem of superfluous men. Like that's that's not what's going on, right? Like that. So yeah, like nothing in kind of like mainstream liberal fu futurism escapes his critique here. 
And I think, you know, like if you if you read his his blog, he, he actually tried to or is probably still selling his uh, old Archdruid report stuff as like a compiled volume. So the blog got taken down by. You can find it mirrored. It's mirrored. Yeah. OK. As, if that archive is still up, I would recommend people go and look at it. I mean, like buy it if you like it. But the you know stuff that he's often really concerned about is how to maintain a moral psychology under these conditions, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like this is one of the things that we have to take on as a mission, is you know trying to adapt our culture to fit these new conditions, right? And you know it's very important to have some kind of spiritual reference. I mean, I think probably all three of us would have pretty strong metaphysical disagreements with Greer as, as in his role as Archdruid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. you know, but you know, that, that aside, I, mean, I think we can all agree that this is clearly something that we are being called to take up in various parts of your life. And, you know, inevitably this is going to be kind of like a, a work of necessity, right? Like, having to drop out of the labor force is generally not a choice that people are making. It's something that's being forced upon them. Mm -hmm. And then the reality is, is that you're going to have to find a family routine and structure and a household kind of management. And you're going to have to find a community that has some sort of power block that can figure out like how it's going to orient itself and what it's going to do. Like all of these things, right? Like that's why we should also be very enthused that there's a strike wave going on because it means that there are everyday people still in the fight negotiating for a future for themselves and for their families coherently together as best they can. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and it is through practices like that, by the way, that the virtues are cultivated of honor, of loyalty, of sacrifice, you know, of prudence, right? You need that for strategy and all of these things. So like when I look at what's happening now, there are plenty of things that scare me. There are plenty of things that worry me, but I am also actually filled with a sort of like vigorous, defiant hope, right? And I think to me, like, that is the type of hope that John was talking to. Like, this won't exist unless we carry it forward. And so it is our duty, whether we win or not, that we must. Yeah. I, one of the, like Mike brought up earlier, Greer's like long, long view, which, you know, I guess we talked about that with Lovecraft too, but Lovecraft is kind of taking it out so long as to not matter. And I think Greer keeps it within a more like a few centuries range which is kind of like <laughs> yeah. useful i think in a lot yeah, of ways it's a, it's a little bit yeah but one of the things that i kind of think about sometimes like i was reading about visigothic spain and like probably no one who's listening to this knows anything about visigothic spain but it lasted like what three four hundred years that's like the whole industrial yeah. revolution like yeah but like to us, that was like a completely inconsequential regime that ruled the Spanish Peninsula for a while before it was replaced by some other people. Or like we'll talk about the British Isles from like the time the Roman Empire left till like seven to eight hundred AD, like three hundred ish years, almost no records archaeology is kind of dismal, like it doesn't seem like it was a great place to live pretty much the entire span of what we consider modernity could have happened within this time period about a place which, you know, it's like, it's England. It's a place that we now still consider like somewhat important or whatever, 
there was a whole period of time that passed that kind of exceeds what we consider to be our contemporary time by far, wherein we know almost nothing. Mm-hmm. And what came out of that was different from what went into it in many ways. And I think that one of the things that I always found really weirdly comforting in Greer was the fact that he kind of always registered whatever he was looking at with a view that was about that long Mm -hmm. and was able to appreciate the fact that like, you know, to us, this is all we've ever known. And there was a period of time where we were all kind of fed the idea that it would go on forever into the stars. But, you know, once you position yourself within something longer, you're like, Oh, this is really weird. Actually. Like, to go back to like the the mark fisher stuff like it becomes easier to deal with the fact that like those things are stopping when you realize that you never had a great reason to like expect them to be there at all yeah in a lot of ways like when you can just appreciate like oh this is all really like strange like this is unprecedented in a lot of ways this was Mm -hmm. like a really weird period of time and i think and that's you can be grateful I'm, for it, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, you can be grateful for it. It's like the happy memories of the past that Christopher Lash talks about, where you neither have to be nostalgic nor dismissive, right? Right. You appreciate it for what it is if you accept that things could fall apart at some point in history, right? Without being apocalyptic, that there is right. something on the line, that decisions matter. I mean, love it or hate it, it was. <laughs> And yeah. that's, that's true. And <laughs> like, you can't, it, it was a thing that existed and happened. And I kind of, people, people like to talk about like, is modernity even real? And I'll say, insofar as modernity describes that, like, I think that it's different enough that we should use, like, I believe in the term and the phenomenon mm-hmm. And in a lot of those ways, like culturally, physically, and so on, like, right. And it is sort of like, well, how do you deal with being a person who's coming out on the other side of something? Maybe, maybe we're mm-hmm. coming out on the other side of something that was just in all ways unprecedented. And I don't know that that's exactly like easy because we all three of us here are like really into the fact that a wide historical consciousness gives us a lot of grounding and perspective on things Mm -hmm. that are happening and makes us kind of like at least a little less befuddled and like kind of blowing in the wind (laughs) but nonetheless it is that being so the fact that what we have been experiencing is so different from most of what we are capable of reading about like Mm -hmm. which is only really a blip in a much larger span of things which we cannot read about or know about it's still kind of a task to situate yourself in that because it is not in that much continuity with all those things that you learn about as it is in a lot of ways, but it also isn't. And there's always going to be a tension in that. And then Mm -hmm. trying to like kind of understand that tension or find like, what is our place in that? Or at least my individual place in that, you know, I used to, I feel like during Obama, I was a lot more pessimistic because I just felt like, that was the truest end of history vibe there ever was. Like no, yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> like, like that was just that was the uncut Colombian end of history, <laughs> right? Like it felt like no one was prepared, especially reading Greer during Obama is like whoa, like this was <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
this was the original red pill like far yeah, more I'll, I'll to take yeah and like you're like wow so like things are just gonna fall apart like pretty soon pretty mm-hmm. quickly in a lot of ways and like people have no clue and like no one who's in charge of anything or like working on anything you're like gonna... wojack at the party you're like i bet they don't even know peak oil is gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> that yeah they don't even that know was a report. <laughs> collapse now and yeah, avoid yeah. the rush green wizard <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go man man i'm like yeah. blast back in yeah. 2009 i mean Look, I think that um, I'm glad we had this conversation because it clarifies the reading series that we're doing on the Patreon. We're going to finish Lash. We'll move into that. What's the name of that German guy, Mike, that we're going to be reading? Oh, yeah. Uh, Reinhard Kasselik. Yeah. And we'll talk about like comparing ideas of history and how that has actually worked. It's like the philosophy of historiography, basically. And I yeah. think that will give us some good meta frameworks after that. And then we'll take a look at that book, The Death of the Subject Explained, so we can sort of figure out why we feel like modernity is grounding to a halt, what that means philosophically, what that means politically, maybe for us. And so that's why we're committing ourselves to reading those books over there, because like, not enough thinking is basically being done in that vein, right? Like we need to, I feel the need to go off the beaten path. Like it's, it's just more interesting too. Yeah. It's not rehashing what other people are already talking about. Right. Exactly. So as always for the first entries in the books, when we do them, we'll make those public and the rest will be paywalled. But I think for now we'll end it there. I am going to, eat some dinner guys this was fantastic love hanging out with you and now that we're done why don't you guys go walk out to the nearest horizon and put on the very end of goddard i'm wrong just listen (laughs) listen to the funeral march section while looking hopefully at a setting sun or like a nice dusk yeah just take it all in yeah hell yeah exactly so stay safe out there everybody we'll see you next time